All right. Hey, church, I love you. Uh, my name is Tony. If you guys didn't know, I am the a pastor of this church. I'm here to give you this word today. We are in a, I have a good word for you today. Um, every time I don't come to church, I always feel like I need to preach an extra long message the next time, right? But you guys are so willing to listen to, right? Oh, you're going to love it. It's going to be great. Uh, but just to uh, give you guys some, uh, some, some, some background here, we, TLC this year, 2023, we are in the theme is a Rhythm with Christ, a year of Christ-centered living. Okay, why do we pick this theme? Why do we pick the theme of Rhythm with Christ? And often it's because, you know, as leaders got together, they were praying, and we, we, we thought about this. The reality is a lot of us would say, after, you know, last year, 2022, rooted in Christ, we, we, would, we would say with confidence, I believe in God, I, I, I know Jesus Christ is my foundation, my salvation, I know that he died for my sins, I, I confidently believe, that. I know that my soul has been saved, that I will see him in eternity one day, but somehow, yet, although I know that he saved my soul, our belief has not yet somehow translated to a character change. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, I, I know it, but it hasn't somehow changed my character. We still live in the same fear. We approach fear very similar to everyone else approaches fear. We still deal with depression, anxiety, unforgiveness in the same format that everyone else around us. So if we believe that we have something so beautiful, so unique, so sacred, so holy, and yet at the same time it has not done anything in our life, then something must be wrong in the way we approached our God. And that's what we call our rhythms. Our rhythms are off. Okay? So every week for the next month or so, we will be giving uh, an overview of how, uh, how to be in rhythm with Christ, to get back into this rhythm where it only just not only know it up here, but it begins to take root in here in your heart and actually begins to live out in the character of your life out here. Four areas that we're going to be focusing on this year, the area of prayer, right, the area of work, the area of relationship year of rest that if we would to cultivate these rhythms faithfully honestly if we deal with them and to get back into these rhythms with the lord what we will begin to see and i know we will begin to see is we begin to see changed lives coming out of that changed character the way we begin to approach depression brokenness unforgiveness will change there will be a hope there will be a strength there will be a foundation to the way we do a lot of these things we finished uh, a few weeks back. If you guys haven't seen it, go back to our YouTube channel and check it out. They're really great. Two messages on prayer. We talked about how cultivating a rhythm of prayer is important because prayer is how we can rightly frame our relationship with Christ. If we have a, relation, a relationship is, that is personal, that we can cry out to God, but a relationship that's also of adoration, that we can set God and praise God. So when prayer becomes the rhythm of our lives, it, it frames the way in which we approach all life. It, it frames the way we begin to confess things. It, it frames the way we, which we begin to um, ask for things. If prayer, if we have a rhythm of prayer that sets God as center of that, getting back into the right rhythm, it changes our character. Last week, our brother Kevin, um, have you guys started calling him Pastor Kevin yet? Right? Call him Pastor Kevin. Come on, man. He has... You know, it's hard for me, but we got to get, get practice, okay? Call him Pastor Kevin. Pastor Kevin, right, 
Uh, he started us off with a second rhythm that we're going to be talking about, which is the rhythm of work. Okay? Why work? Prayer, I get it. Prayer is very spiritual. It seems like something that you need to get into to uh, get back with the Lord. But work is also a rhythm that you need to understand. You spend a majority of your life working. And so in the majority of your life working, how you approach work, how you cultivate work, the rhythm in which you deal with work will ultimately affect your character and the way and your impact to the world around you, okay? So if Christ is your master, then he should shape the identity of your work. But for a lot of us, if we're honest, right, work is very difficult, right, to wrap our minds around. We're still very jaded about it. We come from a background where work is uh, good work, comes in like, you know, unless you have a professional degree, a couple of uh, initials behind your last name, right? You're, you are to be honored and uh, to be coveted. If you have your, your, your bachelor's or your master's or the, the high praise of MD or OD or any of the Ds, right, in there, right? You're, you're like, wow, they've made it. Wow, they're awesome. And then we, we, we kind of have a, a lower view of manual labor, plumber, HVAC worker, right? Sanitary engineer. We, we have this kind of jaded view that unless I have these professional degrees, that's what makes work covered, uh, worth it and, and worthwhile. And if we do these manual labors, they're not as important. Or work to me has to do what? Has to fulfill me. Or else I can't do work. It has to give me some sort of passion unless I, or else I can't do it. I have to be fulfilled in my work. So we have these different approaches when we come to work. And I want to help you today. I want to help set your rhythm of work correctly. I want to help set your rhythm of work biblically. And if we have a biblical theology when it comes to work, if we, if we, if we cultivate that correctly, we will see the goodness and the dignity of all work. Of all work. From the highest medical career to the lowest manual labor job. We will see the dignity of every work there. I want to set that biblical theology for you faithfully. It will, and I hope that it will open your eyes and change the way you see yourself, the work that you are doing, right? And I hope that you, it would open your eyes to see others and the work that they're doing. So by way of illustration, let me, uh, let me start with uh, uh, this, this illustration of chicken sandwich. A chicken sandwich. How long does it take to make a chicken sandwich? Four minutes. Four minutes chicken sandwich. Yeah, right? Right? Four minutes, you know, what, what kind of ingredients you got? You got some bread, right? You got eggs if you're bougie. You got some uh, chicken, obviously, lettuce, tomatoes if you're healthy, like mayo for flavor, all that stuff. It, it, it's, you know, how much it will cost you to make a chicken sandwich? All the ingredients together. 16 bucks, right? Cheaper? Cheaper than that? Man, it cost me 16 bucks to buy a chicken sandwich, right? It's, 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 well, it's cheap, okay? Now, let me ask you this question. Okay, and what we take so nonchalantly when we make this chicken sandwich, we put it together, we're like, wow, you know, four minutes, 16 bucks or less, okay? What if you had to make a chicken sandwich from scratch? Okay? In my, uh, somehow I fell upon this channel called How to Make Everything. And this guy set out to make a chicken sandwich from scratch. It took him six months. 
and $1,500 to make one chicken sandwich, right? Step one, grow a garden because you can't get bread without wheat. You can't have lettuce without lettuce. So lettuce, tomatoes, onions, and herbs. You got to grow your own plants. Step two, get ocean water. Why ocean water? Because that's where you get salt, right? This guy didn't live anywhere close to the ocean, so he had to fly to a place, get a five-gallon of ocean water. Step three, step four, I mean, step three, evaporate the water until you're left with only salt, okay? Step four, pickle your own pickles. Step five, milk a cow, assuming you had a cow on hand, right? If you hadn't, that's a whole other bigger step to go through. But assume, assume you had a cow, milk a cow. Step six, make cheese. How many of you guys made cheese before? Yeah, me neither, right? Step seven, harvest the wheat. And this guy was, he lived in his apartment. I don't know what he was thinking of doing this, right? right? Oh, these guys, right? He harvested the wheat, and I, I did, as he harvested, you know, to pick the grain, he had to put a fan as he dropped the grain because it, it blows the chaff away and then the actual grain falls into the bucket. So he has a one-bedroom apartment and it's just blowing chaff all over the place as he's cultivating grain. Step eight, press the olive to make oil. Assuming you had an olive tree, right? Which would take another 20 years if you didn't have one. So let's assume you had olive on hand to make olive. Step nine, make butter. Yeah, churn that butter. Step 10, make bread. Okay, grind the grain, get the flour. Step 11, murder a chicken, right, or kill a chicken, right? He literally went out to a farm, found a chicken. This, this farm apparently let them kill your own chicken. It was, it was horrific watching it, but he let you kill your own chicken. He killed his own chicken, dumped the chicken in a vat of boiling water to get rid of the feathers, plucked the feathers, and then, you know, cleaned it up, got his own chicken. Step 12, harvest the egg, of said chicken before you kill the chicken, right? <laughs> Step 12, make your mayo, which is just uh, egg and uh, oil. I mean, uh, yeah, egg and oil. Step three, assemble. Step 13, assemble your sandwich. Six months it took him. $1,500 it took him to make one sandwich. As he took his first bite, what do you think his reaction was? Meh, right? <laughs> He's like, it's all right. Six months of work invested, $1,500 wasted to get a, it's all right sandwich. It wasn't even like the best sandwich in the world. It was an all right sandwich. A process that takes you five minutes, under $16, okay? He did six months and $1,500. Point is this. We need to see and learn the dignity and the goodness of work. Sometimes we don't see that, and so we, we approach work with hierarchies and categories. We approach work separating those who have and those who have not, separating degrees and not degrees. We need to have a biblical theology when we approach work because work has dignity. And if you're a Christian, right, but as a Christian, we need to have more than just a mere appreciation work. We must let work transform our lives. So it's not just, I don't want this message to come out of this, it's like, oh, I, I appreciate work. I want it to actually transform your life, transform the way you think, transform the way you act, transform the way you live. Your work, your faith in Christ should transform your work. So we're going to see three things today in this passage. We're going to see the goodness and dignity of work. 
We're going to understand what, got, what uh, has gone wrong with work. And three, we're going to know how, we can be, how work can be healed in Christ. Okay? Dignity of work, how we lost that, how we can get it back. Okay? Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 60. Read with me. And after I read, I'll give you some context behind this. I got to set it up or else you guys... You know, when you read the prophets, they get really confusing unless you have the right context. So let me, let me, let me read it together. We'll read verse 1 through 11 and 18 and 21. Be on the lookout for names of locations. Okay, I'm going to refer back to those things. Be on the lookout for, you know, words like praise, honor, God. Be on the lookout for um, the stuff that these people are bringing to God. Okay. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the arm. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To, the, to you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Median and of Ephah, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense, proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Cater's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nabaoth will serve you. They will be accepted as an offering on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. Who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nests? Surely the islands look to me. In the, in the lead of the ships of Tarshish, bringing your sons from afar with their silver and gold, to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Foreigners will rebuild your walls, and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I, will, I struck you, in favor I will show you compassion. Your gates will stand open. They will never be shut, day or night so that men may bring you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphal procession. Verse 18. For no longer will violence be heard on your lands, nor ruins or destructions within your borders, but you will call your wall salvation and your gates praise. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again. And your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then, with all your people, be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor. Let's pray. Father, I come before you this day, unworthy as I am to preach your message. I ask, O oh God, that you would anoint this place and cover it with your spirit, that we would understand your heart your picture. Help us to form in our minds, Lord, the true beauty and dignity of work. Coming from you, O oh Lord, not from our own selves, not from our culture, not from our upbringings, not from those around us, but Lord, from your word, from your lips. O oh God, teach us this day. We praise you, we thank you, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This, what we just read came from you from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was writing to a group of Jewish people that have been exiled from their land, okay? God has exiled them from Jerusalem, and he has taken them over to Babylon. And why were they exiled? 
Why were they kicked out? Because God in his, in, in his, in his warnings of them over and over, that if you would follow me and listen to me, I will be your God and you will be my people. But if you do not listen, if you do not listen, I will punish. And by way of teaching his people, and this is not just something that just happened once. They did this over and over and over, worshiping other gods, giving themselves to over to other nations. Eventually, God says, you're not learning your lesson. You're not getting it. And so he exiles them to Babylon. So here they are, defeated, lost, a nation, a people, walking to Babylon, being driven to Babylon, to a foreign nation, a foreign king, who's not going to rule over them, control them, direct them, and dictate their lives. As they're doing this, they're looking for hope. They're looking for a word from God. And God sends Isaiah to speak to them. He sends Isaiah to, to, to give them a word of hope, a, a word of blessing, a word of praise. And a cursory reading of this, they're thinking, oh, we're coming back home. God is telling Isaiah, we're coming back home. We're going to make it. It's not going to be like this forever. We're going to be there, right? But if you read deeper, as Isaiah begins to keep sharing this, they begin to say, what? What are you talking about? We're going to Babylon. Why is he saying Sheba? Why is he saying Tarshish? Why Epha? Right? Why, not, why Nabaoth? Where, where are these places? Nabaoth was the farthest known world that they, can, that they know. Tarshish was modern-day Spain, which is the, as far west as they know. Median was as far east as they know. Sheba was as far south as they know. They're thinking, who are these people coming from? Where are these people from? And on top of that, why is there no sun? Right? Why is there no moon? What kind of... There's no more sorrow, no more pain. What is this? And then all of a sudden we begin to realize the prophet Isaiah is not talking about something that's going to happen in history right away. He is alluding to the ultimate restoration that will come. He is talking about, he is talking about the restoration of the new heaven and the new earth where all the nations will gather and come and give proclamation to the Lord, to come and bring offerings to God, to give honor to God, not as tribute of defeat, but as, um, as, as tribute of love and adoration to this king. He's saying, Isaiah is alluding for the restoration of not just the nation, but of the entire world coming here, a new kingdom, a new earth. When God makes everything right, he's describing paradise restored. Isaiah 60 is the, is the restoration of Genesis 3. Genesis was, when God created everything in the beginning, it was paradise. It was beautiful. It was lovely. He gave the instructions to Adam and to Eve. He said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to work the land. I want you to take this beauty and be fruitful and multiply it. Bring Eden to the rest of the world. Cultivate it, grow, bring this beauty, bring my paradise, bring my reality to the rest of the world. That is your job. That is uh, making a blessing unto others as you are bringing this out there. Restore the world. That was the work that we were supposed to do, right? Humanity failed, decided to do their own thing. Eden was lost. <coughs> Isaiah chapter 60, Eden restored. The restoration of all these things. And what we see is that all the nations of the world, where are they bringing to God? They're bringing their work. They're bringing their flocks, right? Flocks don't just pop up. You have to work your flocks, right? They're bringing their gold. 
Gold don't just pop up. You have to mine the gold. You have to refine the gold. They're bringing their manual labor, their work, to the honor and proclamation of God. So this means that just as there was work in the original paradise, there is work in the new paradise. And this gives us a context for a conversation today, which is rhythm of work. Some of you guys are thinking like, wait, hold up. I'm going to be working in heaven? This sucks. You know why you say that? Because you have a wrong theology of work. So let me help you. All right? First thing, let's establish the goodness and the dignity of work. Do you know that in every type of religion, any type of ancient uh, worldview, work is seen as negative? It's a negative thing. It's a low view of work. Work is seen as evil, actually. In all accounts of all legends and creation, work is seen as a bad, demeaning, and negative thing. For example, in, in uh, the Greek mythology, Pandora. You guys heard of Pandora box? Right? The, the God says, Pandora, everything is beautiful. Don't open this box. You're going to screw up the world. And they're like, okay. Right? But Pandora got all curious. She's like, just a peek, just a peek. Right? She opens the box. All the evil spirits came out. Everything, toil, pain came out of that box. And one of the things that came out of it was work. Work for the ancient Greeks was seen as evil, as seen as demeaning, as seen as primitive. Work was a bad thing. Another example was uh, Mesopotamian legends. The gods led by martyrs created a world and realized this is a beautiful world, but to have this world, we have to maintain it. I don't want to maintain the world. You know what? We'll create humans. Humans will be the ones who will do the lesser demeaning job of work. And so humans were made to do the primitive work of caring and maintaining this creation. Work is, work is uh, seen as something that, is, that higher and nobler beings we don't deal with. It's only meant for primitive beings, right? And somehow, somehow, those ancient ways of thinking still persists into us. Those ancient ways of thinking is, is a broken way of thinking. That's why we still have them, don't we? In our culture, work sometimes feels demeaning. It depends on what work you do. Exhausting, taxing, right? You categorize certain work. This work, that's real work. This work, eh, not really. Only in the Bible, check this out, guys. Only in the Bible. The Bible has a very high view of work. When you get to the Bible, you have a whole different story. We have in the beginning God doing what? Work. He's working in his creation. He is creating. He is putting things together. He is making things. And he called it good. He didn't call it tiring. He called it good. It is very good. We see him place his hand in the dust to make man. Manual labor. He told Adam and Eve to work the garden. Okay? Bring Eden to every corner of the world. And this is what, and the implication is this. You can't have amazing, blissful perfection without work. That's what the Bible's saying. Without work, you cannot make something beautiful, perfect, and amazing. Work must be there to cultivate that. To do that, as God is the one who works to make creation beautiful and good, so work is this thing that we use to make things beautiful and good. 
Manual labor was in the beginning of the perfect creation. You guys know that? Manual labor was in the beginning of perfect creation. It was a noble thing. It was a beautiful thing. It was part of paradise. Nothing was wrong with it. Yet somehow we live in a culture, and yeah, I, I grew up with a, a very derogatory term for manual labor, taught to me by my, my uh, manual labor father, right? Uh, it's, it's from a Chinese form. It's, it's the, word, the word is a uh, guli, right? So if you're, if you're a guli, you are someone who works uh, as a de, uh, demeaning job. You work with your hands. You have no status. You have no reputation. You have no good. You're, you're, you're just, this, you're just a, a cog in the wheel. You're a manual laborer. And what we see in this passage is we have people bringing what? Manual labor to God in the days of paradise. And on top of that, we have the person of Jesus Christ who showed up, who spent the majority of his life actually doing what? Manual labor. He was a carpenter. He built chairs and tables, if that's what carpenters did, right? A working man. He didn't just pop in and all of a sudden, let me start preaching the gospel. He worked with his hands. He built something for others. How much more dignity can the Bible give to work? Just to plain old work. And yet somehow, the way we've been raised by our parents, and I, I get it, I get it. Our parents, you know, they, they toil, they, 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 they work. But it probably it's mostly because they also have a bad theology when it comes to work. So they say only this type of work is worthy. This type, you're nobody. Only this type of work is worthy in our family. This type of work, right, that's for the peasants. That's for the poor ones. That's for those who have no education. That's for the idiots. And so we categorize what is good work and what is bad work. And all the while, the Bible gives us dignity behind work. How much more dignity can you possibly imagine when it comes to work? So listen, listen to this, okay? The implication drawn from the Bible about work is this. From Psalm 145, it says, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. Scripture says the food that you are eating, that you're eating, God is feeding us. Psalm 145 says, the eyes of all who look to you, you give them their food at the proper time. You who are Christians, the moment you're eating your food, you're giving thanks to God, you're blessing his name for it, God is feeding you. And you ask the question, but how is he feeding me? It didn't just pop up. Out of nowhere, how does it come? The farmers grow it. The drivers delivered it. The laborers prepared it. The simple farm girl working in the barn, milking a cow, is the fingers of God used to love and to serve you. Think about that. The work of a simple farm girl in the barnyard, milking the cow, is the fingers of God using her work to love and to serve you, through caring for you through her. Do you guys understand this? God is caring for you through other people's work, and he's caring for other people through your work. Whether it's the most professional degree or the most manual of labors, God is using your work to care, to love, and to serve others. 
And he's using other people's work to love, to care, and to serve you. What if, we know, what if the garbage guys don't come anymore? As, it, as, as it's happening in France, apparently. Right? We never think about it. We just put it out there. I put it out every Tuesday and it disappears. I bring it back in. Right? I barely even see them. What if they stop working? What if they stop picking up? Trash gets piled up. And as trash gets piled up, what comes? Rats come. What, 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 what do rats bring? Diseases. Right? What seems like a demeaning, low-class job taught to us by our culture and by the world around us is the very fingers of God used, using those people, the garbage man, to do what? To love, to serve, and to care for you. Isn't that crazy? Psalm 147, 13. For he strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. Psalm 147, 13 is talking about Creating a good, sound society, in order to do that, you need what? You need laws, and you need protection. God is saying, I strengthen the bars of your gates, which means every society that is socially sound and secure, I'm making it that way. Every nation that is socially sound and secure, I'm the one that's strengthening the bars of those gates. And you ask the question, well, how, how are you doing that? God didn't just pop up and start dictating what to do. God is protecting, securing your society through people who are what? Making the laws? People who enforce the laws? Through good government? They are the fingers of God used to serve, love, and bless you. You guys, you guys follow me? Right? The theology that I want you guys to understand is, is this. All kinds of work that are not evil. Okay, I'm not saying every sign of work. All kinds of work that are not evil. So, so, so yeah. Right? So, porn work. Evil. That's not the kind of work we're talking about here. Okay? All kinds of work is a way that God is healing, loving, and serving you. Which means this, if you are doing that work, he is doing the work of healing, loving, and serving through you. Amen. You know, my mom, my mom, you know, she's she, she, typical Asian mom. She gives me the guilt trip. I work 20 years to feed you, provide for you, take care of you, right? So that you can be um, a pastor and make less than me, right? And I, I get what you, I said, Mom, I'm always thankful for your sacrifice. I'm always thankful for what you give. Mom, but you should, you should take pride in your work. There's no pride in my work, right? Well, Mom, I'm just, I'm just a ghoulie, right? I said, Mom, your work is the fingers of God using to loving and serving others, right? I don't know why, but women feel beautiful when they go come across you in a world that tells them that they're not beautiful. Some reason when they come across you after meeting with you, they feel better. Your work is the fingers of God using to love and to serve others. Say, like, whatever. <laughs> you and your God stuff. Stop talking to me. The theology that I want you guys to get is we need, we need to get rid of this categories of worthy jobs and unworthy jobs. We need to get rid of the categories of, I want this job because it fulfills or gives money, and this job it's no reputation, no name. That's beyond, that's below me, that's beneath me. It's beneath us as a people. D. 
the implication of the biblical theology of work, it does a couple things for us. The implications are very amazing. It, it, one implication is this. If you understand this, it rids you of all snobbery and arrogance when it comes to work and people. In a world today, we value work. We honor work that's high paying, right? Ooh, how much you make? Six figures? Wow, that's crazy, right? Full of technical skills? Wow, you went to school that long for it? Unbelievable. That can change the world? Man, you're making a difference. You're making such a big difference in the world. What am I doing? I'm just pressing numbers. I don't want to clean apartments or toilets, right? Menial labor has no impact. I'd rather have an educated professional job. I don't do manual labor stuff. But if you understand what the Bible says about work, your arrogance and your snobbery, it's eliminated right away. That work that you claim as beneath you, that work that you claim is not worthy of your family's name, that work that everyone else tells you is useless or whatever, that work is the fingers of God used to serve and to love you and to care for you. What happens if no one cleans your house? I mean, so, sooner or later, someone has to clean the house, right? Someone has to clean it. Is it you clean the house or someone cleans the house? If a maid doesn't clean the house, what happens to the house? Have you ever seen hoarders? Dude, that thing is crazy. You hoard enough, what happens? Things start growing in there. Mold starts popping up everywhere. Insects drawing other things. It just gets crazier and crazier. Eventually, if you don't clean the house, give it enough time, somebody's going to die, right? Somebody's going to get sick. When your parents say you clean the house, yeah, it's beneath me, right? I don't want to. I don't see value in that. I'm doing more important things. Saving the world in the church, God, or mom, dad, right? Saving the world. I'm going online. I'm influencing the world through my YouTube channels, my TikToks, and all that stuff. I'm doing great things. Clean your room. That's a great thing. You see, if you have the right theology when it comes to work, Snobbery and arrogance goes out the window. You see the person who comes and pick up your trash and you, you respect, you honor, and you love. And you see, man, if it wasn't for him, I would be in trouble. God is using him to serve me, to love me, to care for me. And then you look at your work. Some of you guys have great jobs and you guys are like, oh, some of you guys are like, I wish I had better jobs. If you have that mentality, let me tell you something. Your work... Your work, your work is God's fingers to serve and to love others. And when you have that mentality, it's because you have the wrong theology when it comes to work. You need to fix that, mud. Secondly, the implication of biblical theology of work, it frees us to work not for status and money, but in order to serve and love with our gifts. Right? Because right now, all we think about when it comes to work is I got to have status, I got to have money. Maybe we don't say that out loud. Right? But we kind of humble brag about it. Yeah, you know, I, I work at this place. Yeah. I get a sleep pod and, um, you know, they, they have food ready for me. You know, I, if I'm tired, I get to go climb a wall. You know, it's, it's, not, it's nothing, nothing crazy about it. You know, don't you have a wall at your workplace, right? <laughs> a lot of us, a lot of us, pushed by our own fears, 
by our culture, by our family, by our, uh, the way we were raised, right? We take on jobs for what? For status, for money. Don't we? For the sake of social status, we jump into jobs that don't fit us very well. And it actually leaves us very unhappy, right? I've known people from our church, got a degree, right? And then just gave up their degree. No longer working in that. They went to school for like years, spent like six figures on their, on their, doctor, on, on their doctor degree, and then now rather do real estates, I guess. I don't know. Because we jump into that for what? Because my mom wanted it. I thought it was what you know, everyone else was doing at that time. And it leaves us very unhappy. But if you understand what the Bible says about work, you won't fall into that vicious trap because you begin to work you begin to do something, and, and you look at your work not from the picture of status or money or how much you make. You begin to look at your work and say, this work is used to serve and to love others. God is using this work from me, though it may not pay much, though it may not have a lot of name recognition, but God is using this work to love and to serve and to bless others. Yeah, I might not get a house out of this work. I might drive a beat-up car for a long time from this work. But this work is not demeaning work. It's not low-class work. This work is a work, I didn't do it for the money. I'm doing it because God's fingers. I, I, am, I, am, being, I am God's fingers to bring love, care, unto others with this work. It changes the way you think about work. Third implication from biblical theology of work, this high view of work, it drives us to work with excellence. It makes us work with excellence. If we understand that other people's work is a way that God uses to love you, and your work is a way that God uses to love others, then guess what? You're going to do your best job. Right? If, if, you, if you approach your work with the theology that comes from the Bible, a high view of theology, and you're thinking, you step into it as, hey, man, this, I feel like I'm, I do this every day. It seems like such a bore. But if you have a mentality that says this work is God's fingers to love and to care for others, you begin to go into that thinking, I need to do an excellent job at this. I need to do an excellent job. Some of you guys, how do I become a good Christian worker? Just do an excellent job of what you do. What makes you a good Christian uh, pilot, land the plane, right? Land the plane. If you can land the plane and land it in a way that it can fly again, you're doing an excellent job. Your work is the fingers of God to care for those in your plane, to get them from point A to point B. Land the plane. Do your work with excellence. And if you break that plan, the people can't be served through it, right? You have to approach your work that way. Sometimes, I'm not going to lie, I've been working at uh, Elite, my SAT academy, for 18 years now. I've been teaching SATs and math and to kids for 18 years. I'm not, oftentimes, I walk in there, I'm like, man, he needs to fire me soon. Man, I'm getting tired of walking in here. Kids are different. Every, every, I, see the, I see changes in kids, like, 
categories of kids. Like there's, when I first started working, kids were like, you know, a little bit more relaxed and free. And as the years progress, they get even more like secluded, isolated. No matter how much you talk to them, it's just like, yeah, hi, okay. Right? I'm, so, I'm getting so tired. If I didn't have a proper theology of work, I would do what? I'm done, right? I quit, Mr. Lee. I don't want this anymore. This is not fulfilling me anymore, right? This is not giving me a status anymore. I don't feel like I'm making anything anymore with this. This is as far as I can go. No, I, I work into it, and I say, my work, my work is God's fingers to love and care that God is using to love and care for these kids, Okay? They may not ever trace back to me, like, oh, I remember that one time when I had that SAT teacher, you know, Tony, and it wasn't for him, I would never make it to med school. Okay, that's, it, it won't, probably won't go that far. I would like to think that way for myself, but it doesn't go that far. But it's part of the journey. And it's part of God's hands preparing that person for that. It drives you to work with excellence, not to be more lazy. Biblical theology of work makes you want to be excellent. It makes you go in there and thinking, if I do not work, if I don't do this work well, then people cannot be served through it. God uses work to serve and to love others. So if I'm not doing it well, people aren't served. I better be doing it well. Fourth implication, it makes us realize that religious and secular work are both honoring to God, right? Sometimes we get this mentality, oh, religious work, that's honoring right? Secular work. Uh, it's, it's, it's nice, but it's not, you know, like spiritual, right? So like, if I really want to honor God and be spiritual with God, I got to get into the ministry. I got to start pastoring. I got to go off to missions. If you read a book that says the man that God uses, you will never expect anyone else but a missionary or a pastor. You, would, you, you wouldn't expect someone like, you know, a businessman or an engineer or a politician, but if you read your Bible, you know that one of the greatest men that God used was Joseph, right? He wasn't a theologian. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a missionary. He was a slave. And his work was actually principal. Uh, uh, he worked in the palace. He worked in politics. And he was a man that God used to save many. But when we have the wrong idea of work, we start categorizing, oh, this is spiritual. My job is not. This, this job honors God. This job doesn't. No. All work honors God. You know, it's funny. I, I, I get my hair cut from um, uh, Vietnamese people. Whenever they ask me, uh, hey, Tony, what do, you, what do you do for a job? I said, I'm a pastor. All of a sudden, the demeanor changes. Oh, it is such an honor to cut the head of a pastor. And I'm like, is it different? Like, what's going on? Like, is it, do I have a different head? Or, you know? And they're like, no, it's, your job is so important. You, you care for people's lives and souls. And I'm like, your job is important. He's like, no, 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 this is, this is Gulli's work. This is manual labor's work. This is uneducated work. This is the kind of work you do when you can't be as smart. You know, you went to school for this stuff. I said, no, no, ma'am. Stop. Stop. Even an educated pastor has to come to you to get his hair cut. Because if I left my hair out, God forbid what would happen. Right? Your work is the fingers of God to serve and to love others. Have value and dignity in your work. Whether, even in our church, whether you are the 
most professional degrees or you flip burgers for a living. It doesn't matter. Your work is God's fingers to serve and to love others. You guys following me? Right? God can greatly use men and women in medicine, law, business, the arts, as well as ministry, religion. Work is God's fingerprints to love and to serve others. Man, let me tell you guys this. Okay? But I know what you're thinking. That sounds great on paper, PT. Right? That sounds great on paper. But I work. And work is exhausting. Work is troublesome. Work is tiring. Okay? But it's frustrating. What's up with that? It's nice in theory, but in practice, it's not like that. So I can sit here and listen to you talk about God. I am God's finger to the world around me. When I'm actually in the work, I feel tired. (laughs) I feel frustrated. I'm over it. Isn't that true? To cultivate a rhythm of work... One, you have to first see the dignity of work. I hope you understand that. Work has dignity. All work has dignity. But you also have to understand what has gone wrong with work that leaves you so frustrated, so tired, so exhausted. What has gone wrong with work? Isaiah 60, what do we see? We see all these nations, Sheba, Ephah, Midian, Tarshish, Nabioth, coming back to give tribute, give their works to God. That is the reversal of what? When was it we all scattered? Anybody? Anybody? Babel. The Tower of Babel is when we were all scattered. Genesis chapter 11, okay? Isaiah 60 is the reversal of Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis 11, the people came together and they said, what? We're going to build, we're going to build a tower, right? We're going to make it amazing. It's going to be like decked out. It's going to be awesome. And we're going to make it so it goes as high as we possibly can. We're going to reach heaven itself. If God has rejected us, we're going to him. Why did they do that work? That's a work, right? They put the martyrs, they put the, the, that's when people learn all the tools and the traits to actually put that t- tower together. Why? Did they do that work? The motivation behind it to reach the heaven was what? Scripture says, so that they can make a name for themselves. I want to reach heaven. Build this work. Put this together. Deck it out. Why? So that we can make a name for ourselves. They were choosing a motivation for their work. They were having a motivation that would dictate their work. And that motivation was what? So that I can be praised. So that I can be about me. It's like this. It's like saying, I'm going to be the next guy to make the the next big IT company. Right? I'm going to make the next killer app. I'm going to... I'm going to be the best, uh, I'm going to do the best at this thing or that thing. We're going to make the largest of that thing. I'm going to create uh, the grandest of that. I'm going to change the world through my work. Why? So that nobody else on earth has done anything like this. Why? 
because I want to do something with my life. No, at the heart of it is this. So you will know, then I'll know that I am somebody. Then I know that I am somebody because I've left something behind. A legacy, a name. People will remember me. I will have some worth, some value, some identity, some dignity. In Genesis chapter 11, they were working for their own glory. They were working for their own name. They were working for their own identity. And then what happened? They were fragmented, scattered, separated. The problem of work is that since sin entered into work, work has been used to do what? Instead of being the fingers of God to love and serve others, and has been used to make a name, an identity, a sense of worth for oneself. Isn't it true? I want this job, this degree, so that I can feel like I've made it in the world. I want to have this much money in my bank account so that I feel secure and I feel like I am part of the society so that I can actually stand around with my peers and say, you know what, I'm okay. I'm there with you. I want to do A, B, C, D. I want to make the greatest of this or the greatest of that. Why? So that people, so that I can feel in my heart, I've made it. If the heart of why you do what you do is you, you know what happened? It will lead to fragmentation, brokenness. Even if you say, even if you have, with your best intention, saying, well, PT, I just love, I, I, I love what I'm doing. I just love doing it. If at the heart of your motivation of why you, look at, if why you took the job, why you stayed in the job, and why you keep pushing along in that job is because it advances me, it makes me feel happy, it gives me my status, it advances my outcome, the result of a mentality and a motivation like that from work, which comes from the fall, which comes from the inheritance of sin, the motivation from that or the, the result from that is fragmentation, separation. Because in order for you to advance, another person must be halted, right? In order for you to get better, someone can't. In order for them to get the promotion and the money, you have to be brushed aside. If the motivation is you, fragmentation will happen. Brokenness will happen. Because if you get what you want, it'll go to your head, don't you? If you, get, if you get everything you want, I got the job, I got the money, I got the title, I got the status, it gets to your head. And you begin to look upon others as a way to use them as your stepping stone, not to serve them. Even if you say, no, no, I'm teaching you all these things. Why are you teaching it? Yes, yeah, so it benefits me in the end, right? Because if you do better, I do better. Because ultimately, it's about me being better, so I have to help you to do better. You feel good about it because you, you're, you're not where I'm at yet, but, you know, you're still working at it. Good for you. But I'm here for me. When you do better, it means I get to do better. The motivation is you. So you people begins to be what? Be a vessel of use, not someone to serve. That's if you get what you want. If you don't get what you want, it'll go to your heart. And you will feel what? Useless? You feel used by others. It fragments you from the inside out, and it will devastate you. So on one side, if work becomes, if the motivation of work is you, which is what brokenness comes from, right? The reason why there's toil, why there's exhaustion, why there's frustration, 
why there's pain in the work that you do, in spite of the theology that God has given, the dignity that God has given to work. The reason for that is because at the heart of your motivation, your work is about you. And if you get what you want from your work, it goes to your head and you use people to get that instead of serving people. And if you do not get what you want, you begin to feel worthless and useless, passive, regressive. When work becomes your identity, when it becomes your worth, when it becomes your value, or even your salvation, it will fragment you from yourself and to others. And you can say, I'm, I'm working, I'm working to make lives of others better, PT. But at the heart of it, your work is to give you a sense of self, a name for yourself. Right? Look in, here in Isaiah. Isaiah says what? We see the coming, in Isaiah 60, we see the coming of all the nations, tribe, and tongue. Why? Because their motivation is to, verse 6, to honor the Holy One, to make an offering to God. I'm doing it for God. When I see my work as a work that God is using me for the service and love of others, it begins to change and it brings healing to the nations. When you are filled with the love of God, you can make your work an offering to God, an honor to God, and suddenly work isn't about yourself. Let me, let me this, here's a big idea, okay? Here's a big idea. I put it in my notes in case you guys got lost and all that. Big idea is this. The only way work can become a healing factor from your hands, less of, a, less of a frustration, less of a toil, is you need to get a deep sense of your identity and your worth outside of your work. Right now, your sense of identity, your sense of worth is directly tied to your work. Whether you feel great about yourself or you feel useless about yourself, it's tied to your work. It's tied to your bank account. It's tied to your degrees. It's tied to your lack of degrees. It's tied to what you do and what you don't do. To be a healing factor, when work can become a healing factor, your identity must be found outside of your work, outside of what you do. And then, when you are actually full, you can bring it back in and work can become a way of serving others. You follow me? Work cannot be your identity, your worth, your value, and your salvation. You have to get your identity, your work, and your value, and your salvation from somewhere else, from the outside. And then when you are full, when you understand that, when you understand who you are, then you step back into work because it no longer controls you. It no longer dictates you. You can actually serve in your work. Whether you have lots of money, whether you have no money, whether you get a promotion or whether you don't get a promotion. That has no ties to you because your identity and your worth and your value is no longer in that. It's found somewhere else, and you can actually use your work to serve others. And the question you ask me is what? How do I do that? How do I get a worth, identity, value outside of my work? And it's not a how, it's a who. The answer is Jesus Christ. Work can only be healed through Jesus. Otherwise, you're going to be chasing your whole entire life. All these nations, what were they doing? They were coming home to rest. Right? Sons and daughters, they were coming home. Nations will come to your light, 
verse 3 and 4. Kings to the brightness of your dawn, your sons from afar, your daughters are carried on the arm. The passage is saying humanity is coming back to paradise. It's coming back to the place of rest. It's coming, they're coming back from the exile. Genesis 3, God exiled humanity out of Eden. When they decided to themselves, we want to become like God. I don't want to trust you, I want to chase. And the world, and we have inherited that curse ever since. You know why God kicked you out of Eden? It wasn't because like, I was like, oh, you messed up, I'm going to kick you out now. He kicked you out to save you. There was two trees in the Garden of Eden. One was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's the one they ate from. The second tree was what? The tree of life. So here you are, broken. If God was to say, okay, now live forever in that brokenness, what would become of you? You're, you're broken because if you're choosing to find your worth identity in yourself, now, if I give you the opportunity to live forever in that brokenness, I'm actually destroying you, not saving you. And you guys understand this. You guys see old people, right? They're not the Christian ones, the, 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 the non-Christian ones, the bitter ones, the angry ones. As they get older, you know, they don't, they don't care anymore, right? So they say whatever they want. They have no filter. And what they say is some, some dark stuff sometimes, right? They're like, whoa, you can't, you can't just tell them they're ugly. You know, that's just not right. They're ugly, right? Okay. No filter. They don't care. Evil begins. Can you imagine? That's only 60 years. Can you imagine if they live forever in that brokenness? What will become of you? God kicked us out of the garden, not so that he's like, oh, I'm so mad at you. I'm going to punish you. Bad boy, right? He kicked you out because this is the way I'm going to save you. You are broken, and, the only, and your brokenness has led you to continuously now seek for your worth, your value, your identity, and something else besides me. I gotta, I'm going to set you on a course to bring it back, to restore it. And that course is through Jesus Christ to find our rest. When Jesus came, he came as a what? As a working man. He was a working stiff. He was a wanderer. And when he went to the cross... He got the exhaustion. He got the emptiness. He didn't have rest. He didn't have peace. He, didn't, he had cosmic restlessness. What was he doing? What was he doing? He was taking the exile in our place. He was saying to the Father, exile me. I'll take their restlessness. I'll take their frustration. I'll take their curse. I'll take the consequences that they deserve for living for themselves. I'll take it. Because, Father, they can't come in. They can't do it by themselves. They're restless. They're frustrated. Their work is toil. They cannot find rest. They cannot come home. They won't find it on their own. So, God, I'll take their place and they can have mine. I'll take their exile and they can have my exaltation. I will give them true rest. And the father says, but son, it will cost you. It will cost you everything. It will cost you your life even. And Jesus says, I will pay it. I will pay it to bring them home. I will pay it 
to love them. I'll pay the cost. And when you now, in your exhaustion, in your frustration, in your tiredness, look upon God, you say, Father, accept me because of what Christ has done. It's not my name. I know that now. It's not my name that saves me. It's not my name that gives me my worth and my identity. I've tried that. I've worked for it. And all I've been left with is continual frustration, emptiness, longing, and chasing. It is never enough. It's, I know that it's not my name that saves me. It's his name that saves me. It's his name that gives me an identity. It's his name that gives me a worth. It's his name that gives me my value. It's his name that gives me my salvation. It's not my work. And when we come to that place, in Jesus, you have your salvation apart from your work. Can I remind you again? The only way work can become a healing factor is you need to get a deep sense of identity, value, and worth outside of your work. And when you have that, then you can bring it into your work and become a hand of healing here in this place. What does it mean that my identity, my value, my worth is in him. It means that whether you have a six-figure account or whether you only have a three-figure account, whether you have multiple initials behind your name or no initials behind your name, whether you are working in what people call a professional degree job or a manual labor or blue-collar work, you are not defined by that. And God looks upon you with love still. It is not what you do that makes you his son and daughter. You're already his son and daughter because of Christ. I shared this story last time with you guys about my son. I mean, it makes me laugh still, thinking about it. When he did something wrong, character-wise, making fun of somebody, right? Because all his friends were doing it, so he thought that was a normal thing to use certain languages to make fun of kids. You know, so I had to correct that and, you know, as a father, tell him, this is what we do, and tell him stories of how dad's past was very similar to that and how things happened and teaching him character, right? And then, you know, I thought it was done. Go start for dad. Great lesson. Go do your thing, son, right? I thought, you know, that was great. He learned something. And he walks around, defeated, broken, sad, like, oh. I'm like, what's wrong, Seth? Nothing, dad. Like, Come, tell me what's wrong. Nothing, dad. Kicking the ground, like, exasperated. So I said, what's wrong? I just feel like I'm not worthy to be in this family anymore, right? I'm not a good son. I'm like, bro, <laughs> What is, I mean, in my head, I was trying my best to do what? Empathize? Because that's what you're supposed to do. You empathize, be on the same feeling level with them. But in my heart, I was just laughing. I was just laughing. I'm like, you're my son. Why would you ever think that's changed? How, how could you ever possibly imagine that change? Because of what you did? Regardless of what you did, right or wrong, you're still my son. You're still my pride. You're still my joy. You're still mine. And he was like, is it though? Yes. Yes, son. If you're wrong, I will correct you. But I love you not because of what you do or what you don't do. You're my son. I love you because of that. So what does it mean to have an identity outside of work? It's that whether we achieve or not, we know now in our hearts, if it's our identity is in Christ, we know now in our hearts what? Whether I'm, I'm, I'm following the crowd, and I'm making all the degrees correctly, I got the house and the car and the bank account and the insurance and all that stuff, 
whether I have that or I'm just, you know, a blue-collar worker, gain day by day, paycheck by paycheck, loving, caring for my family, whether I do one or the other, my Father loves me still. He loves me just as much as anyone else. I am no better and I am no worse. So Job, give me your best shot. So Job, throw your best thing at me. I'm not identified by you. You go into your work, you go into your labor, now with your hands, now with your mind, now with your heart. What can you do? You begin to come in and you begin to serve. So-and-so got a promotion before you. They, they passed you up again. It's all right. right. My identity is not in how elevated I am in my promotion. I'm here to serve. I'm going to do my best job. I'm going to do my excellent job. If they don't see it, they don't see it. But I know who sees it. My God, my Father. That's the one I'm trying to please. Not my earthly boss. You come in to manual labor. You go and you fix and, 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 and you have pride in your work. You do your best job. You, 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 you're, not, you're not cutting corners, but you're doing your best because you know that the wrong screw turned the wrong way can mess up the whole entire plumbing, mess up the whole entire house, mess up their whole entire week, their whole entire lives for a while, right? Screw up everything for them. You know, so you work and you hear, I'm here to serve. I'm here to give the best job I can for this family with my hands. It's only when you find identity outside of your work can you actually begin to serve in your work. You guys follow me? Your rhythm of work needs to change, church. You need to see work with value. You need to see each other's work of value. And then you'll see arrogance and snobbery out the window. Your character is changing. And then you see yourself not working for status or money. You're just working to serve. And then you begin to have this passion, this conviction to do excellent in your work. And then you recognize your work. Your work is an honor to God, not a sense of salvation for yourself. Let's pray.